0: It's not the same now as as that initial exercise where I'm just using one drawing. I use any number of drawings now in the paintings. The paintings are layered amalgamations of lines and shapes from any number of those drawings. So I'm taking bits and pieces of things that I've observed in the landscape and making a cohesive painting out of them.
1: Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's one hundred and ninety-sixth episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Lisa Bergant Coy, who is an artist and painter. She joins us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we're going to talk a bit about her work as well as her solo exhibition up right now called Configuring the Collection. That's at Gallery 201 in Morgantown, West Virginia, and runs through the 31st of August, so check it out if you can. Of course, if you're joining us for the first time, Studio Break is a podcast and blog site we feature a variety of different artists that come on and talk all about their work in these very candid interviews. You can, of course, listen to these interviews on StudioBreak.com using the default player you can also click to that iTunes link and subscribe to the podcast, but be sure to check out the posts. Again, we share images of the artist's work as well as links to their websites so you can track down and find out more information about them. Of course, we have a healthy archive on studiobreak.com, so please check it out. If you're interested in finding us in social media, please be sure to like our Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter at studiobreak and, of course, on Instagram at Studio_Break. And with those announcements out of the way, here is our interview with Lisa. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Lisa Bergant coy How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well, David. How are you today?
1: Awesome. Awesome. I'm coffeeed out and, you know, the <laughs> weather's cool for a change. Uh, and again, just to kind of get an idea of geographic location, you know, I'm outside of the Chicago area in the suburbs and you are?
0: I am in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay.
1: Okay um what's the weather like there because i I don't mean to make it sound so weird but it's like the end of summer and you know things start fading out and you know i'm waiting for the leaves to fall and
0: (laughs) today it feels like that's just around the corner here too it's it's cold last night i think it went down to 50 degrees and we had the windows open and it it was very nice yeah i think the tide might be changing
1: Well, again, it's exciting to have you on, of course, to talk about your paintings and, you know, we'll jump all over, you know, those types of things. And as we were just kind of talking about, you know, it's interesting to kind of go back into time, I guess, and guess very literally like a time machine going back and trying to remember what it's like to be creative as a kid and and things like that, but do you have uh, things in preparation that you noted, you know, little interesting anecdotes about your young makings, I guess?
0: In thinking about my childhood, I have to say I came from a very creative household. Um, The fact that I grew up 15 miles east of Cleveland on the lake has something to do, I think, with my outlook, but more importantly, um, the household I grew up in, I think, was, was pretty important.
1: Were your parents like uh, particularly creative? I, I know my grandfather, for example, was like this huge carpenter, so he'd always be like cutting geodes in half, and I get really excited <laughs> about that mechanical process, even though I'm a terrible you know, carpenter or anything like that.
0: My preteen years were filled with what some would today call just good old-fashioned playtime. Um, my sister and I were very creative and used our imaginations all the time. We would dig up my parents' flower beds for the clay underneath, and we'd make pinch pots out in the driveway. We'd make forts all the time. We would make a clearing in my grandmother's woods and find chopped wood to make furniture out of. And every time we visited her, we'd be out there playing. I think from my dad, I learned how to be resourceful in that way and also how to problem solve creatively he he was the kind of guy that could look at something and fix it or um, you know come up with a solution very readily Mm -hmm. yeah and so as far as the formal arts go they were pretty much just part of daily life in my family Um, and that came down through the generations my I had my great aunts were trained sopranos My mother is a classically trained alto, and her brother was a concert pianist. And she, you know, music was predominant in the house. She had music playing all the time, all kinds of wonderful, really good stuff. So in considering all of that, I think the arts were definitely appreciated and considered worth pursuing in my house. There was never a question or an eyebrow raised about my going into art.
1: Which is somewhat uncommon sometimes, yeah. right? I mean, yeah.
0: I mean that, yeah, that's why I say that because you know you hear a lot of um, people get, get uh, a lot of people are met with attempts to redirect their their choices.
1: Sure, a- accountant seems very logical. <laughs> in looking back, yes. you know, um, yes. Well, and so did you ha- have a lot of like arts, you know, training in terms of classes and and stuff like that going up.
0: No, no, I didn't. In fourth or fifth grade, I recall that my parents gave me, maybe it was for Christmas, um, what I remember to be like a briefcase filled with art supplies, um, y- you know, like a, like an art kit. And I was absolutely thrilled to get it. I remember sitting at the kitchen table, going through the materials with my dad. And we were, you know, it, it, it also came with a how to draw book. So I remember this, you know, the circle for the head and the large circle for the body um, of of a swan. So uh, it was my first time holding a piece of charcoal in my hand as well as a kneaded eraser, and it it was it was great. I loved that. So I think it was recognized that I had a knack for drawing, and my my parents nurtured it. And from that recollection on, it's clear to me that art was an integral aspect of my life. I took art classes every year in middle school and high school and then went on, of course, to college as an art major.
1: And that was something that you had kind of set out like from the beginning to be like, I'm totally going to be a painter or a drawer or something that is in that is in that genre in terms of like starting college I
0: went to a school that had a good art program and a good music program I went as an art major I knew I was going to do art and two, two-dimensional work drawing and painting but um, I was also very good at music and I wasn't ready after high school to give that up so I went to Bowling Green State University they had a good art program and a good music program and I was able to do both for a few years
1: in terms of like working in the arts and Bowling Green and painting and drawing, what was that experience like? I mean, did you dive right into it?
0: Yes, absolutely. So I went into Bowling Green able to move directly into some upper level classes. My high school uh, program was outstanding and my portfolio review placed me out of the um, introductory courses. So I was able to go into, again, the, the higher-level classes, painting and drawing. But sometime my junior year, I heard about a program uh, called the National Student Exchange, and I understood that I could study for one to two semesters at an out-of-state university for the same cost as attending my own. You know, I looked at that as an opportunity to study with different people, and that's how I initially got involved with Illinois State University, The coursework they had was really interesting to me, and my school didn't offer it. The faculty bios were really strong. So I ended up going there for a year and a half.
1: Interesting.
0: As an undergrad, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I I went back to Bowling Green and graduated from there.
1: Well, and so I guess just uh, since you kind of skipped all of those, you know, maybe drawing bottles and um <laughs> <you> know hallways <laughs> and all those lovely things um, yeah what was it like then in terms of like the works that you're kind of making like again the people that i know from bg um have such a strong representational background but again having kind of gone to uh, illinois state university myself um you know it's interesting to think about where that might have been or you know what the work might have looked like i mean were you making you know formal paintings at the time or
0: outside of you know the classroom assignments um when I, when I was making, you know, more or less my own work, it was a process that's similar to the way I work today, which I find really interesting, you know, when you look back at the early stuff. Mm-hmm. Basically, I was drawing from still life, but I was not actually prearranging a, a display in front of me. I would look around the room in the studio and... Sort of visually gather the things I was going to put into the painting. And for example, I'd, I'd look I'd look across the room, and there was a cleanser can, so I'd draw that. Mm-hmm. The other side of the room was a bar of soap at the sink, so I'd put that in. The composition sort of built up that way, and eventually they became more abstract, and the color became non-naturalistic. I wasn't trying to necessarily make a picture of something or illustrating an idea i was just making and searching like um, what if i what if i did this what if i put that there well i already did that what could i do now so that's that's kind of the approach i was taking taking then my uh, it's kind of my, my sister calls it um calls the work from that time my cylinder period because there were a lot <laughs> of cans there were a lot of cans in work <laughs>
1: Well, I, I guess it's interesting because I feel like everybody has a, a cylinder period or something, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, I painted bags, you know, for three years or something.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Well, I, hardly enough, I say that, but I feel like I know those people. <laughs> well, so that's kind of interesting because, like, again, you know, usually um, that's an experience that people have after they kind of complete their degree, you know, kind of moving on to having other professors. Was that something that was... You know, helpful in terms of being able then I would imagine that did you have to like come back to BG to have like an exhibition of your work or yeah. How- how did that process work in terms of coming back to complete your degree there?
0: For the National Student Exchange Program, you were uh, allowed one or two semesters, and I actually finagled that third semester <laughs> because I liked it so much. So when I came back to Bowling Green, I had a semester uh, left of my senior year, and then I, I think I had another class that I had to take in the summer. So that following fall, yeah, I, I, I hung,
1: hung a, an exhibition of the work. And these were all of these uh, cylinder type paintings.
0: Yeah, right, right, right. That's that's that was my that was my bachelor's degree work.
1: Interesting. And again, it's it's, I always say to people, it's remarkable how you know diverse people's paths are because like, you know, usually that process of finding a graduate program is. You know, uh, a mystery almost in some some cases. So yeah. you know, it sounds like then you kind of knew exactly you know where you wanted to go. Was that kind of something that happened immediately, or something that you you know took time to see how many people <laughs> talked to you on the street about painting? I I worked at Hobby Lobby for a couple of years after Excellent. undergraduate. So I I, I think it's weird because like you realize like oh you know, customers don't have any interest in, in painting. They want the certificate <laughs> framed or whatever it is. So it's kind of like, oh, I got to find these people again. But
0: So after receiving my BFA degree, uh, I worked in retail and um, decided that it was time to get back to the studio. Um, I, I had been making work here and there, but it was time to go back and... Um, Study further and, and continue pursuing that. So, I actually returned to ISU to work further with Harold Gregor and the rest of the faculty there that I really really came to
1: enjoy working with. the, the work that you that you applied with uh, is was it similar to the cylinder based kind of work or
0: the work I applied with was work that I that I that it was new work. It was work that I had made after school and um, it's still. Retain the the quality of still life, but it had to do with 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 perception. How when things are in front of you and you're moving a little bit, how things shift, um, and that seems to be the common thread throughout all the work that I've ever made.
1: Considering your your statement about your work now, I think that totally makes sense, right?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Which is so cool to to when, when I when I sort of you know put all that together, I thought wow, this is fantastic. Like this is my authentic self coming out. And I, I, I really, I really liked that idea.
1: And I guess just to kind of get an idea too, at the time, I mean, you're starting graduate Mm -hmm. school, you know, what, what size are your, your works? Are they kind of like a modest size? Are they massive? Are they small?
0: The work in grad school ranged from, uh, works on paper that were just standard size. Like, uh, what size is that? 30 by 40, that kind of thing, maybe. And and then I had um, uh, that up to some six-foot square canvases.
1: I guess in terms of just kind of like thinking about that process, too, I mean, were you looking at like a lot of artists? Were you, you know, taking a lot of trips? Again, you kind of mentioned and, and talk about in your current work, you know, um, kind of distilling drawing from landscapes and highways and things like that. And obviously, we have been talking a little bit about, you know, how that worked for still life. But were, were there other influences and things that kind of you know informed what you were interested in?
0: At that time, I was exploring the concept of pareidolia, which is um, our propensity for finding meaning in random data, like you know when you look in the clouds and you see rabbits or horses. Mm-hmm. So I was making work with source material that didn't that didn't declare itself as any particular thing, and that was images of organic matter seen from under the microscope. Mm -hmm. So it was a different subject matter, of course, than what I'm using now, but it was similar in the sense that there was no frame of reference for the viewer. So whatever color I used in the paintings gave clues to the viewer about what the imagery might be. I suppose in essence, I was giving the viewer clouds to find meaning in in my paintings.
1: And were they kind of similar in terms of like a color palette? Were they kind of bright and colorful or were they muted or kind of a bit bit of both?
0: It was colorful, but it was not by any means bright and cheery. In fact, I remember Harold Greger walked into the studio one day and he looked at the work and he goes, oh, Garden of Doom
1: and Gloom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I never forgot that. It's I just it, it was funny at the time and it's funny now, but he... He, he it was he was right on he was spot on to me um you know i thought they were gorgeous luscious colored paintings and and for him to walk in and say doom and gloom i i i was a little surprised but um again it, it i thought that was really good i i've tried to make bright um let's say quote unquote cheerful paintings for lack of a, a better way to um talk about this and I, I, can't do it. It's not, it's not in me to do it. There's something that feels not quite truthful in that. And I think that's a function of my, of course, a function of my outlook on the world. Like I'm a very, I'm a very optimistic person, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that go on in the world that are not good. And, um, I, I think that that just comes out in in my color choices sometimes.
1: Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, if there's kind of like this balance between in the current work, kind of like this muted color versus yeah. these really colorful areas. I mean, to me, I th- I think there's always that kind of correlation or, you know, being able to kind of compare the two, you know, so that like kind of having having those things together kind of makes it more powerful than just you know, just those paintings that you see for me anyways, paintings that I see where I feel like everything is straight out of the tube. I I feel like, yeah, I can't do that. You know, I, I I feel like that's an icky feeling or something to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in terms of kind of like wrapping that, that experience up there, Mm -hmm. was it kind of like a, a similar thread then in terms of these kind of very formal paintings?
0: The, um, Larger canvases I was working on uh, were a little bit different than the um, smaller, uh, more color-laden ones. They were uh, underpainted with actually plaster patterns, and those patterns uh, were covered with a very limited palette, and they were shiny so that the reflections would shift as the viewer moved by them. And in my head, I was was thinking that each viewer essentially was seeing a different painting, right, as the way that the light reflected to their eyes. And that was something that is also um, important to me in my work now that's kind of carried over. The thing that I find interesting about that is that after grad school, I actually took about a 15-year hiatus from making studio work. I got married shortly after school, and I worked in the interior design industry while my husband was in grad school, and eventually we had two children, and then we moved around a lot. So at that time, I did decorative commission work, um, but it wasn't until we moved to Pittsburgh um, that I resumed a serial studio practice, and it took several years to land on something that i found sustaining
1: well and i'd imagine too with all you know the responsibilities of you know being a parent and being there for your family i mean i'm sure obviously that was something that kind of um you know took some some focus um but i would imagine you know that desire to kind of you know be uninhibited and creative again is something that kind of drew you back into to making
0: Yes, you are absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, when the when the girls um, got older, that that came back full force. I, let me say that I, I wouldn't have changed a thing. I loved every minute of of that time spent with my kids, but once I got back in the studio, I didn't realize how much I missed it.
1: Well, and so what was the 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 things that I guess brought you really back into it where you were, you know, starting to feel a groove. If if I can say that artists ever feel that groove for very long, it feels like <laughs> the needle's always jumping around the record sometimes, but
0: I went in and I, I, I did something that I did in undergraduate school. I hung 30 pieces of, uh, I think they were 10 by 10 pieces of paper to my walls. I stapled them up, gessoed them and I took, one image, one abstract drawing that I had, and I made myself make 30 paintings of that same thing. And by the end of that, you know, by, by like the 15th, 16th one, you've gotten rid of the cliches, you've gotten rid of the stuff you're used to seeing, and you really have to dig deep to be creative. So that's something that I that I always enjoy doing to, to kind of get that groove back and to just be making something. Those are on my website. Those are, uh, the, the 14 takes of the same scene out of, out of those 30 that those 14 were the, were the good ones.
1: So obviously there was this abstracted kind of start to all of them and they all wound up in different places, but was that based off of a a landscape?
0: My current work is based on drawings I make of the landscape as a passenger in the car going 75, 80 miles an hour. Um, (laughs) So they're, they're observational. They're intently observational, but um, because I'm moving fast in the car, you can imagine that they're naturally abstract. Those drawings, the car drawings, as I refer to them, um, have become my primary source material.
1: And so those, in terms of, like your your paintings serve as the the way in the entry point, and then it becomes all fair game, I guess, as you're working through.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. Like like I said in that exercise before, I'll prepare uh, like 15, 20 canvases or whatever surface I'm going to work on for that body of work, hang them up in a line on my wall, and then it's not the same now as as that initial exercise where I'm just using one. Drawing. I use any number of drawings now in the paintings. The paintings are layered amalgamations of lines and shapes from any number of those drawings. So I'm taking bits and pieces of things that I've observed in the landscape and making a cohesive painting out of them.
1: So is there a process then in terms of how you, you know decide how you're going to switch up each painting? Do you just kind of like arbitrarily dip it in (laughs) this? I like this color. I'm going to mix up this color and see, and then cover that over. ah, Gosh, I feel like I had to edit so much of my abstract paintings, you know?
0: (laughs) Yes. So initially these paintings, well, they still take a long time to make, but initially they were painstaking. So um, I devised a system to speed it up a little. So what happens is so I have all these canvases ready on the wall and um, I will initially put some kind of value or a color wash down. The color ideas for a new body of work are usually generated at the end of the previous body of work. So if I've done, um, for example, the last body of work that I did that are not yet on the website are are pretty Pretty dark. This next body of work that I plan to work on will be. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna try to make them in like high key colors. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that goes. But anyway, so um, so the I have a, like a, a notion of the color before I start. And what I'll do is grab five random drawings. So I I have hundreds of these drawings in my studio, and they're they're now on a small table, and they are categorized by um, like road lines. So, you know, at one point I was drawing just the road lines. And then I also have a a pile of big shapes and a pile of small shapes and a pile of things that look like trees or roads or, you know, stuff like that. So they're categorized for quick access. But at the beginning, I will grab five and tell myself, okay, you have to, you have to pick something from these drawings. You have to pick one thing from these five drawings and and put them on the canvas. So that way I'm just getting something down. um, And I'll do that for a while until I have something there that I, I have to react to. And then the process slows down again. And every mark, every color becomes a very deliberate decision.
1: And especially I would imagine then these are all up at the same time. So yes. you're, you're kind of able to kind of look at one and then mm-hmm. think about how, I don't know. Is it like, what do I do? That's the opposite. Or what do I, how do I move this idea into the opposite direction? You know, it's, yes. it's just so sure. interesting.
0: Yes. And it's, it's a, um, this source material leaves me just wide open for creative possibilities. I'm not tied to anything. Um, so that that's exactly right.
1: And it sounds like too this is something that might entirely be dictated on the day. You know like you like right now it's super nice out and it this week started out <laughs> rainy. So I mean like I just immediately kind of get struck by like I'm looking out the window and seeing all this green and blue sky. It makes me think of those types of things as opposed to you know during the winter or something.
0: Well, y- yeah, but the, but it but that's not necessarily the case with me because I don't use naturalistic color. Mm-hmm. So in, in fact, I avoid. I don't. I I try to avoid someone being able to come to the painting and say, "Oh, blue sky," or "Oh, that green over there—that's the grass." You know, I, I I take great. I make great effort to avoid those kinds of overt associations to the landscape. What happens in the paintings is driven by. Some compulsion I have toward the peculiar and um, c- creating creating something that's kind of odd and mysterious. In fact, um, when I'm selecting a particular, uh, you know, I'm looking, I'm sifting through the drawings, looking for just that right line or or um, mark or shape that the composition needs of a particular painting, and it might take an hour before I land on just the right thing. And it's not that there aren't many marks that will do the job, but the only ones that get into a painting are the ones that make me say, that is so weird. I love that. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, after an hour of looking for just that right thing, that's the piece, you know, then I'll put that in the painting and maybe it'll take me three minutes to, to paint. But so there's a lot of there's a lot of thought that goes into trying to reach this, what I call, for lack of a better word, a gut vision, like this thing that I want to see that I want the painting to do. Yeah, a lot of, a lot. Of, I think that's why they take me so long to make. In the end, there has to be some spark, something in them that is, um, I don't know, weird or, or, or compelling to me.
1: Well, and again, in terms of talking, we're talking about the departure paintings. Mm-hmm. Are the the backgrounds something that's kind of like worked out first and then layered over, or are there areas, are there paintings that you have to like entirely paint out? And because they're so like rich in terms of layering, you know, you can kind mm-hmm. of see. You know, I'm looking at, and I'm sure you're going to be like, oh, I know exactly what that is, right?
0: No, I am because I I have I have the page from my website in front of sure. me. I am well prepared. <laughs>
1: But there's one called Gray Lines that I'm looking at, and there's just this kind of like swirl of all these violets and, you know, variations of blue that kind of lean towards like a blue-green to like red-violet, and they kind of like swirl around, and then you see all these other kind of like more direct overt layers, and so there's all these layers kind of build up into a lot of your paintings, and... I'm just curious in terms of like that that process. Is that something that you you know have the background totally set before you commit to those linear elements, or you know is is I don't know how does that work? <laughs>
0: that's that's a hard thing to talk about. You know to, to sort of go back and see think about how you actually made a painting. But um, no, it all it all kind of comes up at once. I think probably put some blobs of color down and and again was looking at many you know many different drawings, you know, the, the, of the car, the card drawings are in that painting. So at that time, I was, well, and I, I still am very interested in visual perception, the physiology and psychology of it, you know, the, the both the way we see and the way we interpret what we see. When I'm selecting shapes and marks for these drawings, they um, need to be ambiguous, not readily identifiable. For, so for example, in that picture, there's a series of pink lines on the side. Well, you know, to me, that could be, um, those could be lines of a tree, it could be lines in the, the tar lines in a road, any number of things. So, so um, and even more so in the recent work, the bits and pieces in the paintings are, I think, even more ambiguous. But that, but the, the one that you initially were asking me about, Departure Gray Lines, that one, um, I guess, again, as they all are, is very much an attempt at color form space. So, so the color is really important to me. The fact that the color is non-naturalistic is important because to me that opens the possibility of interpretation by the viewer immensely they're not, you know, by, by staying away from overt landscape colors, they maybe become more about psychology and how, again, how we interpret what we're looking at.
1: And I think I might've already asked this in some ways, but then is there like a particular, you know, like there's some that I noted had like a particular color scheme or one in particular that had a really wonderful kind of like cross complementary color scheme. But is it something maybe where you're, starting and just kind of thinking like i'm feeling this today or
0: so a lot of times i i have this i don't know sort of proclivity toward a particular color like um the last body of work i did it was yellow yellow green you know just that not yellow and it's not green Mm -hmm. and i just needed to work with that so a lot of times that's how certain colors end up in the paintings but um it's not it's not it's not really based on how I'm feeling it's there it, it's based on what what happens and what's happening in that particular painting. So like I said, they start out kind of randomly and that goes kind of for the color too at the beginning and then and then my color choices are just determined by the needs of the painting and thinking about color form space so and of course dictated by. Uh, i guess I guess a certain mood that I feel is coming up in the in the painting, which I suppose is my mood but i don't I don't know
1: but that's kind of like what you're a little bit of what you're after then too though right in terms of just making sure that they're like you said not purely referential to whatever that initial start is
0: as you can see the the progression of the paintings um the direct la- landscape reference has almost disappeared and even as as the paintings progressed and my ideas developed even the, the the drawings i was making in the car changed if i felt a need for some for a particular shape or some some type of marks that i couldn't find in my drawings the next time i got in the car i I'd, I'd make those so i was actually then making the source material to meet the again to meet the needs of the painting
1: and one thing that we haven't talked about either is, uh, so you know, you're working on a number of these at a time. Are there some that kind of like come very easily, and then some that are rough, or are they always like those long kind of struggles? Because you described some of those paintings being like that as well.
0: More often than not, struggles. Yeah. Um, once in a while, like a, maybe a passage will come easy, but there's there they're often, yeah, no, they're always they're always difficult to make. I would say, yeah.
1: Is there anything that you do in terms of being able to look at them differently to see how you might adjust them, like turn them over, or you know, anything that's sure. kind of weird about that process that's particular to you?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I will indeed turn them over to see, uh, maybe to get a different feel for what the painting needs, and I will also take photographs with my iPhone of them because I find that looking at the painting at a small scale and a much reduced size is helpful to get just kind of a quick overview of what's happening in that painting. The, the value distribution or, you know, what's missing in color. I, I do that. I do that regularly.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the the current exhibition that you have um, up in, in West Virginia and, and maybe, you know, what's going on currently like and coming up in the year.
0: It's been a busy year for me. Um, in June, I had a solo show at Jan Brandt Gallery in Bloomington, Illinois, and that body of work with the addition of several large paintings is um, now the show that's hanging in Morgantown at um, Gallery 201. I also have work currently in a group exhibition that's comprised of Pittsburgh and Cleveland based artists at Lakeland Community College in Northeast Ohio. and. Um, there's a, a, I have a small painting in the upcoming small work show at Harper College in Palatine, Illinois, and that's um, through the end of September.
1: What was that body work that you were talking about a little bit now that you're that you're working on that we'll hope to see soon?
0: Yeah, well, that's that's the work that's in the show. So um, it's similar. It's it's no longer in a square format. Um, they are uh, I, I, I I tried out some portrait oriented formats to kind of I don't know maybe make some kind of tie with the individuality of the viewer you know in the sense of the portrait orientation so um we'll we'll see I I have a feeling I'll, I'll go back to the square format it was difficult for me to work in the in the rectangular format and then um next in the studio the plan is to make big big work on paper I have a six foot roll of Strathmore and I have 14 foot ceilings in the studio. So, um, I don't know exactly what those will look like, but I'm, but I'm very excited about it and, um, I'll just have to, you know, see, see what I come up with, but, but it'll be fun.
1: Where are the best places to see your work so that, you know, people listening can follow and, and see what you're doing?
0: Oh, thanks. Yeah. So my website is com, And you can also find me on Instagram at lisaburgantcoy underscore art.
1: Awesome. Again, uh, it sounds like a lot of wonderful stuff is coming up, especially when you got a 14 foot tall ceilings, you know, that's, <laughs> that's ripe for a really large painting, you know, that sounds like a, a treat for you know, any artist that's uh, working on a tiny table or something somewhere. So um, very exciting stuff. And again, thank you so much for for taking the time.
0: Oh, well, it's been great. You're a gracious host. Thank you.
1: Thanks once again, Lisa, for joining me. You can check out her solo exhibition up right now at Gallery 201 in Morgantown, West Virginia. The show's entitled Configuring the Collection, and that's up through August 31st, so be sure to check it out if you can. Otherwise, just head on over to and And check out some work there. Be sure to follow her on Instagram as well. If you like today's episode, please be sure to visit studiobreak.com and check out some of the other episodes and artists that we've had featured. Once again, we have images of their work as well as links to their websites for more information. You can listen to the interviews right there in the default player or just hit that iTunes link and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss one. Of course, we always appreciate it when you help spread the word about Studio Break, so be sure to do that via our social media. Once again, we have a Facebook page, so please like it and share there. You can also find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break, so please help get the word out. Thanks again to Skylar Mail, who provides the music of Studio Break. You can check out his artwork at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, please check out my solo exhibition up right now at Manifest Gallery, entitled Pembroke. That show runs from now until September 14th and features about 16 paintings. You can also, of course, visit my website, davidlinaway.com, to see some of those paintings that are up right now at Manifest And, of course, Manifest has a number of exhibitions. They're a very interesting and exciting venue. They have a group show entitled Text Reality and New 10 up right now, as well as New Naturalisms, Paintings, and Collage by Jennifer Meanley. And that all runs through September 14th, so be sure to check it out. Other than that, if you want to find me, you can also do that on Facebook, David Linaway, And, of course, you can find me on Twitter at David Linaway, and, of course, on Instagram at David Linaway. So be sure to hit me up there and say hello. Thanks once again for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.